back in the book of Exodus, we are taking two chapters of Exodus, Exodus chapters 35 and 36. And yes, we will read through these passages this morning. But as we come to Exodus 35 and 36, you might be unfamiliar with these chapters because maybe you've skipped over them in your Bible reading plan. As we give attention to these two chapters, and indeed, as we give attention to the last five chapters of Exodus from chapters 35 through 40, we're going to think that a lot of it can just be passed over, that we're going to, uh, that it's a little bit repetitive, and that we don't need to pay so much attention to it because a lot of it has been repeated already. Uh, chapters 35 through 40 seem to rehearse a lot of what we had encountered earlier in chapters 25 through 30. Now, if you remember what was going on in chapters 25 through 30, Moses is on Mount Sinai and he's given instructions on how they are to build the tabernacle, instructions on how to construct the tent, instructions on how to construct the Ark of the Covenant, and how to construct uh, the altar of incense and the, 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 the bronze altar as well. So there's a lot of instructions in 25 to 30, and they are almost repeated verbatim here, almost verbatim, in chapters 35 to 40. It seems so repetitive that, in fact, Christian commentaries don't even take time to address these verses. I have uh, several commentaries on Exodus, and some of them treat them all together as one. Some of them, be, uh, chapters 25 to 30 and 35 to 40, as just one section. Uh, some people just devote a few pages to chapters 35 through 40. And critics think that there has been an error in the compilation of Exodus, that somehow whoever was compiling Exodus just doubled up by accident some of these things. So when we come to passages like this, whether in our Bible reading plans or in a sermon series, they can do several things for us. First, they test our belief in 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And we often focus on the breathed out part of God and how the word is infallible and it is inerrant and it is inspired. But let's not miss the very first word of that verse. All. All of it is inspired, including passages like chapters 35 and 36. Chapters 35 and 36 is going to be profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And second, when it comes to passages like this, it helps us to step out of our own world and into someone else's. We might find this passage to be rather repetitive. Uh, and, but it wasn't to Moses, the original author, and it wasn't to its audience. For some reason, both Moses and Israel found this repetition not only necessary, but very important. And I think as we take a closer look at chapters 35 and 36, we not only see how important these verses are to Israel, we're going to see how important it is to us. Because these verses talk a lot about what it means to serve God, the essentials of serving God even. The Israelites are about to build the tabernacle of God. That's what's happening in these chapters. 
God is going to dwell among his people. So what would it mean to serve God? The first essential in serving God we see might come as a surprise. And that first essential is a need to rest. A need to rest. Look at chapter 35, verses 1 through 3. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Now talk about repetition. This is the sixth time that we have seen the Sabbath appear in the book of Exodus. In chapter 16, verse 22, right when Israel escapes out of Egypt, God says, the seventh day is a solemn day of rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Chapter 20, fourth fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Chapter 23, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Chapter 31, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths. Chapter 34, on the seventh day you shall rest. This is the commandment given right before the incident of the golden calf. And this is the commandment given the first thing right after the incident of the golden calf. Obviously, it is very, very important. So why does God repeat himself? Why does God repeat himself? First, the Sabbath reminds them to worship God his way. It could have been an easy temptation for Israel to say, hey, look, you know, we're so busy, uh, you know, doing the tabernacle, we're about to create the place where God is going to dwell among his people that they could have said, well, I'm doing the Lord's work. I don't need to, I don't need to attend to the Sabbath. Let's just skip it. But God reminds them of their primary need to worship him and worship him in the way that he has instructed the specificity of this chapter underscores how important it is to worship, the God, worship God the way that he commands. God says, you don't make it up on your own. You don't say, you worship me, you come to the Sabbath every three days, every four days, every six and a half days. It's every seventh. My worship is not a place for creativity, God says. And that may surprise some of you that the way God wants to be approached is not necessarily self-evident and intuitive. You know, people today assume that if God is a God of everyone, then surely any heart naturally knows how to worship him. But the Bible says that that kind of assumption is false. Apart from God speaking, you and I, would not know how God wants to be worshipped. And God underscores this in the particularness of these instructions because God's instructions tell them, be faithful, don't try to be novel. Faithfulness more than novelty. And let me just take a moment right now to draw your attention to that point because many churches, in an effort to get the largest number of people to hear them, employ novelty to achieve that end. So if you're a visitor with us this morning, maybe you can tell already 
that we aren't really into novelty. I don't know, by the way, that the service has been run, by a call to worship, a, a prayer of confession, these hymns that we're singing, these long prayers. We have a church, I think, that is meant to bore the nominal Christian. If you come to our church and just do the normal church thing, and, and that's what we do, which is we just read the Word, we pray the Word, we preach the Word, we sing the Word. And if you just want the nominal thing, you'll likely yawn and leave and never come back. And in a funny way, that is fine with us as a church. We want to reach those who are lost and know they are lost and need God. And we want to reach those who want to be serious about who God is and what it means for their life. And we want Christians to gather together and to be fed by God's word. So we are here for those who are lost and those who are Christians. People who just like the nominal part of it, the name of it, this is not going to be a church that will immediately serve you in your desires. So the Sabbath was a reminder about worshiping God His way, but it was also a reminder about trust. You know, verse 2 says, you're not even to light or kindle a fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day, meaning you don't work. Now, as we saw a couple months ago when we went over the Sabbath, there are elements of continuity and discontinuity between the Sabbath law and the Lord's Day worship, which is what we're doing right now. Yet clearly, this was a call to trust in the Lord. Church, it is fitting that we set apart one day in seven to gather together for the worship of God. Too many people see corporate worship as a good thing to do when work isn't busy. If there's a better, if there's, you know, if the football game is uninteresting, or if they're not on a ski trip. But coming to worship with God's people in person, regularly, and all of this is a positive giving ourselves in trust to God that we might fellowship with Him. You need time to attend to your soul, to grow and to be nourished. The Sabbath was a reminder every week for the Israelites, do you trust me? God is saying, do you trust me to do things my way? Will you trust me in your vacations and to even perhaps organize them around the Lord's Day? You know, a lot of serious athletes say that in order to run at peak performance, you need time to learn to dial it back. You cannot be running, if you're trying to run at peak performance, you cannot be trying to hit your VO2 max every single day if you know what I'm talking about. You cannot do that. You must learn to dial it back, and you must do some zone two kind of cardio or whatever it might be. You must learn to rest. And perhaps all of us need to hear this word that we need to dial back and to trust God, that you don't need those extra hour of, hours of work on Sunday, that you don't need to soak up every vacation experience, but what you need to do is to rest in God. So that's the first essential in serving God, a need for rest. The second, it's essential to have a heart to give. This is the second essential, a heart to give. 
Follow along as I read, yes, verses 4, all the way through 29. Moses tells the people to get to work in verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat's hair and tan ram skins and goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. So all of these donations are going to be involved with the tabernacle. Verse 10, let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its coverings, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin and stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle and the pegs of the court and their cords, the finely wrought garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. Then look at verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. I think what's happening here is they've been given a command. And now they're thinking about it. How did they respond? Verse 21. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, and everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord, and everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tan ramskins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands. And they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work, that the Lord had commanded by God to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. Now skip down a couple more verses. Chapter 36, verse 2. And Moses called Bezalel and Aholiab and every craftsman in whose mind the Lord had put skill, and everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. And they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary. They still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came, each from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from ringing.
but the material they had, sufficient, had was sufficient to do all the work and more. Isn't this amazing? The Israelites were in, instructed to construct the, the, the tabernacle, and they certainly had to think to themselves, God wants to dwell with us. Is this something that we're going to do? They had to think for themselves just for a minute. Remember when God nearly wiped us out for our sins justly when we worshiped the golden calf? Are we going to do this thing? And their answer is a resounding yes. And they displayed this with lavish generosity. What did they give? You can summarize it in, in something you've probably heard before. They gave of their treasure, their time, and their talents. Didn't they? They gave of their treasure, gold, silver, bronze. They gave of their brooches and earrings. They gave purple and scarlet yarns, all of it as a contribution to the Lord. These items, mind you, were not theirs to begin with. They were a nation of slaves. How did they have these things? Oh, it was given to them from the Lord when they left Egypt. And now, whatever they have, they are giving it right back to the Lord. They gave of their talents. Many of the items for the tabernacle required a large number of people with wide skills. They didn't just need engineers or doctors, people in the medical field or lawyers. What they needed was even artisans, craftsmen, everybody. They needed skillful women to spin. Bezalel and Aholiab had to be able to have uh, skill in artistic design and be able to teach it to others. And of course, they gave of their time. Certainly, they were busy people with their families. Certainly, they were trying to, I don't know what they were busy doing, gathering manna in the mornings. They were probably busy just trying to survive in the wilderness. That's how some of us feel. But they took time to lay out architectural plans. They took time to spin goat's hair. But do you see not only what they gave, but who gave it? Do you see that in these verses? Everyone. Everyone gave. Full participation. Verse 29, all the men and women, the people of Israel were involved. The men gave, the women gave, and the leaders gave. They were not exempt. Verse 27, the leaders gave. There are probably many other categories that Moses could have placed there, but he's saying men, women, leaders. And that's a way of saying everyone gave. But most important is how they gave. You notice that they gave from the heart. You notice that twice in this passage, it, this is a giving called a free will offering. And notice how many times it mentions their hearts. Verse 5, whoever is of a, what, generous heart. Verse 21, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him. Verse 22, all who are of willing heart. Verse 29, all the men and women whose heart moved them. Verse chapter 36, verse 2, everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work. God loves a cheerful giver. Jesus taught where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And this heart to give suggests that their hearts had changed indeed. In fact, they were so generous Moses had to tell them, I've never heard any other pastor say before in my life, he had to tell them, stop giving. It's too much. It's too much. Was all this stuff, did God need that 
the, all those things? No. I think God could have, if he wanted to, he could drop the tabernacle out of heaven. Boom, it just appears. Easy. But he allows men and women and children to participate. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of the women who spun the yarn and they're walking with their, maybe their, their daughter and said, hey, look over there. And maybe in a godly pride said, you see that, that piece right there of the tabernacle? I, I did that. I had the privilege of serving the Lord, of giving to the Lord. Now, let me just say that this is a very well-known passage because it's usually brought out when the church has a capital campaign, when they're trying to raise money for a new building. Coincidentally, we happen to be in a time in our church's life when we are wanting to build and wanting to purchase a building. But just let me, this is just my regular exposition through Exodus. <laughs> there is no kind of ulterior motive here. But second, let me say this, that you church, Redeemer Bible Fellowship, you're a generous congregation. I have experienced, actually, what Bezalel and Oholiab had to say. When they said, no more, it's too much. I remember when I had my firstborn and people were bringing food to my house. I had to say, stop bringing food to my house. There is no more room in the freezer. Or when you guys all found out that I enjoyed coffee, I had beans coming out of my ears. <laughs> I am so thankful for you. But church, the work is not done. We need your continued joy-filled giving for the support of the gospel ministry, for the expenses of the church, for the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. But also we need your time and we need your talents. We do. There are no redundant gifts in the church. You are absolutely vital to the church. There is no way to replace you, and therefore, we need you here and present on Sundays. Our body does not function properly. Were you not here? utilizing your talents for the building up of the church. So think right now, what might your heart be prompting you to do? Don't simply wait to be invited to serve. Have a conversation with someone. Take the initiative. There are needs in the church. Where might you have a heart to give for the sake of God's glory? Now, parenthetically, let me just say, you might come up to me and say, Pastor Steve, you know, my gift is to play the bassoon for the Lord. When can I do that? And let me just say, I can probably find an avenue for it. But where do you have a heart for the sake of the church's needs? Maybe it's just being present and available through the week where somebody can call you and you are not oh, thousands of miles away somewhere else. And someone just needs you to be able to come over and say, and just have a conversation with them. Maybe it's the nursery. That's a ministry that's sure to grow in this next year. 
Maybe it's writing a note of encouragement to somebody else. Maybe it's opening up your home. Maybe it's taking a newcomer out to lunch. Perhaps you feel moved to consider adoption or foster care. Where is there a need? Don't ignore the prompting from the Lord. I dare say we are the richest people in the richest part of the world. We are incredibly talented. And so let's be absolutely and overwhelmingly rich in generosity. Three essentials in serving God. There must be a need to rest, a heart to give, and third, a zeal to obey. A zeal to obey. Let's read from chapter 35, verse 30, and we will take up the rest of Exodus 36. Follow along with me. Verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan." He has filled them with skill to do every work done by an engraver or by a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen or by a weaver, by any sort of skilled workman or skilled designer. Skip down to chapter 36, verse 8. And all the craftsmen made the tabernacle with ten curtains. They were made of fine twine linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns with cherubim skillfully worked. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. All the curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain of the first set. Likewise, he made them on the edge of the outermost curtain of the second set. He made 50 loops on one curtain, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that was in the second set. The loops were opposite one another, and he made 50 clasps of gold and coupled the curtains one to another with clasps, so the tabernacle was a single hole. He also made curtains of goat's hair for a tent tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the outermost curtain of one set and 50 loops on the edge of the other connecting curtain. And he made 50 clasps of bronze to couple the tent together that it might be a single hole. And he made for the tent a covering of tan ram skins and goat skins. Verse 20, then he made the upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits was the length of a frame and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. Each frame had two tenons for fitting together. He did this for all the frames of the tabernacle. The frames for the tabernacle he made thus, 20 frames for the south side, and he made 40 bases of silver under the 20 frames, two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. For the second side of the tabernacle on the north side, he made 20 frames and their 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, and two bases under the next frame. For the rear of the tabernacle westward, he made six frames. He made two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear, and they were separate beneath but joined at the top at the first ring. He made two of them this way for the 
two corners. There were eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases under each frame, two bases under every frame, two bases. He made bars of acacia wood, five for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames of the tabernacle at the rear westward. And he made the middle bar to run from end to end halfway up the frames and he overlaid the frames with gold and made their rings of gold for holders for the bars and overlaid the bars with gold. He made the veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen and cherubim skillfully worked into it, he made it. And for it, he made four pillars of cassia and overlaid them with gold. Their hooks were of gold and he cast them four bases of silver. He also made a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen and embroidered with needlework and its five pillars with their hooks. He overlaid their capitals and their fillets with gold, but their five bases were of bronze. I confess that you were probably like me, tempted to just say, see chapter 26. <laughs> you probably have a cross-reference there, chapter 26 in your Bibles. The intricate detail is almost verbatim to chapter 26. But there's a method to Moses' madness here. Repetition in scripture is done for emphasis. Think of all the times God had repeated himself in Exodus. He had to call Moses twice. Moses, Moses. God had to make the tablets of the Ten Commandments twice. And here he repeats the instructions of the tabernacle twice. The first time God told them, how they are to build it, now they actually build it. Now, remember the first time God gave them the instructions, it was interrupted by the incident of the golden calf, of their idolatry. One of the ironies is that while Moses is on Mount Sinai, he's actually receiving from God instructions on how to create the tabernacle. And meanwhile, the people were down below creating for themselves a God of their own choosing. But now Moses records Israel's careful and meticulous obedience to God's commands in building the tabernacle. And while it may seem tedious to us, you can imagine that it was glorious for Israel. You can imagine the covenant community listening to the story with appropriate pride saying, yes, we did it. And we did it exactly the way the Lord had commanded. We did it according to the book. He told us to build it like this, and we built it just like that word for word. Look again at chapter 36, verse 1. They work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. Israel got everything wrong the first time. Now they're getting everything right. Flagrant disobedience is replaced by wholehearted obedience. Once they contributed gold in crafting a golden calf, and now they contribute gold in crafting the tabernacle of the one true God. This is the final indication that Israel has truly repented of their sin with the golden calf. 
It served as evidence of Israel's complete restoration with the Lord. We often think of Israel, and we think, ah, tis, tis, you know. There's just this whiny, stiff-necked people all the time, but not here. Here they are an example to us. They had a zeal for obedience, word for word, line for line, precept upon precept. They obeyed. Now, sometimes Christians can get a little antsy when we speak about obedience. There are sometimes this mistaken notion that if we're truly gospel-centered, we won't talk about rules. We won't talk about imperatives or moral exertion. We can be so easy, eager to not confuse indicatives, which means what God has done, and imperatives, what we should do, that we're scared of words like diligence and duty. So let me be clear on this final point here. The necessity of obedience should not undermine in any way our confidence in justification by faith alone. Faith and good works are both necessary, but one is the root and the other is the fruit. You see, the gospel is not the good news that you have done enough to merit God's favor. That's not the gospel. The bad news is that we have not at all done anything good. In fact, we have not rested in him at all. We have rested and placed our trust in other things, maybe even ourselves. The, 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 the truth is that we have not served God at all, that we are rather serving ourselves, that we are curved in on ourselves because of our sin. The truth is that we have never Obey God from the heart. And that's where the good news comes in. That is why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die upon the cross, to pay for your sins so that you may be forgiven and you are justified by faith and faith alone. And yet that faith that joins you to Christ makes you right with God, that kind of faith works itself out in love. Because now you've been given a new heart. Now you are free, absolutely free to rest in God, to give to God from a, from a true heart, to obey God from the heart. And so you see, genuine repentance works itself out in a zeal for obedience. You know, repentance is not simply feeling bad. That, that will accompany repentance, but you don't need the Spirit of God to feel bad when you've done something wrong. Genuine repentance isn't saying you're sorry. That might accompany repentance. But you don't need the Spirit of God to say, I'm sorry. Is genuine repentance an act of pious regret like how Israel would just do these great acts of showing that they are, they, they regret what they've done. They would put on sackcloth and ashes. Again, that might come with repentance, but it may not be true. You can feel bad. You can say you're sorry. You can do great demonstrative acts of despair, yet never truly repent. We see the essence of repentance. True repentance manifests itself in conspicuous acts of obedience. 
Think about that right now, husbands and wives. When you guys get in an argument with one another and you're saying, I'm sorry, please forgive me, I repent of doing that, are there conspicuous acts of obedience that follow? It takes the Spirit of God to move from rebellion and disobedience against the Holy God to conspicuous acts of detailed and precise obedience. If the Israelites just wept at Mount Sinai and wailed after the golden calf, incident of the golden calf, and said, shame on us, that wouldn't have meant that much. But because they are there and they're saying, we're listening, Lord. You are worthy. We want to do it. We want to do it. So church, do, you, we, do we have this conspicuous acts of obedience? Whether we are serving, whether we are giving, whatever we are doing, are we looking to God's word and serving the Lord line by line, word by word, precept by precept? May we rest in the Lord and yet give and obey. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God that saves us out of your mercy and grace. And so I do pray for those in this room who do not know what it means to find their final rest in you. Pray for those in the room who are serving or giving, maybe out of obligation, and not from a new heart, who obey begrudgingly to keep up appearances. But, O oh Lord, may your spirit blow through them and save them, O oh Lord, that they may have true repentance, turn to Christ and place their faith in his finished work on the cross. And Father, may we as a church be conspicuous in what we love, in what we're resting in, who we're resting in, where our trust is. May it be clear to one another and clear to this world by the way we use our treasures, by the way we use our skills, that Jesus Christ is worthy. And may we, by our faithful obedience, display that we are a set-apart people, a kingdom of priests for your use. And pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing in response.